Ruth, I've got two more. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you what probably everyone's thinking and you, freeform answer, answer however you want. How much sex is normal to have in a month? Answer that however you'd like, but I feel like anyone would be wondering that right now. More Wiser Podcast. Ruth Ramsey, sex educator and coach. So if you look at your calendar right now, how far out in advance do you have the word sex on it? Two weeks, three weeks, and is this something we should all be doing? Normally I have it around one week, sometimes two weeks out. Okay. What my husband and I will aim to do, but we don't always remember, is on a Monday, have a look at our diaries and see when in the week do we want to put that little love heart on the page to mean this is going to be our evening or our afternoon for intimate erotic time together. So that doesn't necessarily mean um, sexually intimate acts. It certainly doesn't mean there has to be penetrative intercourse, but it means that there's time when our phones are going to go away, when we're focused entirely on each other physically and sensually, which typically does lead to sex. And so that's a little heart moniker. Now, either of you can place it on the calendar. I'm assuming it's a shared calendar. And then that indicates, you know, one of you is looking to do that. Is there like, uh, does the other person fill it in? Like, I acknowledge this is what's happening or do, do you put like a circle around it or how does that work? Um, well, we're quite old school. We both use paper planners oh, okay. rather than a shared. <laughs> we have a shared <laughs> online diary and it turned into such a mess with with multiple different jobs and families and birthdays and, and stuff like that. Um, so we sit down together on a Monday morning and we look at our paper planners um, because my husband is tech support, admin support, etc. for me, um, as you know, from when we were preparing for this podcast. And some of the work we're doing, for example, if I'm doing an online webinar, he is there as tech support. And then there's aspects of my work and his work that are separate. So we need to look look at our diaries and sit down and get our heads around our weeks. So we'll agree. Oh, hey, about how about on Thursday evening we make sure we finish and work work on time. Um, and one of our kind of code phrases is have an early night. So should we have an early night on Thursday? Um, and we'll both then put a little love heart in our diaries for Thursday night. Okay, I got gotcha. you. And so. What you two are doing, I think, is very rare, as you've probably experienced, to have those conversations. And, it, you know, in your TED Talk, which is phenomenal, like I mentioned, you compare sex to playing tennis, minus the competitive part. And I think it makes the topic very approachable for a lot of people, but it's still highly taboo to, to talk about sex just in our day-to-day -day lives, or at least it feels like. Why do you think that is that it feels like it's going to raise your blood pressure if you even broach the topic with someone, even your partner? Um, well, I think most of us are taught from a young age that it's wrong and dirty to talk about it. If we um, go to our parents or caregivers with questions, generally we're shut down. I would hope that that's changing in a lot of families these days. But certainly for anyone kind of age 20 or above, typically they will have been shut down. And we don't see any examples of healthy, shame-free conversation about sex. Basically, we never see that as an example. So therefore, we assume that it's not okay. And then we're also taught by 
mainstream TV, by culture, that good sex should be spontaneous and wordless. It should just happen. Um, if we need to ask our partner questions, then that's some kind of failing on our part. So particularly in a heterosexual pairing, for the man to have to ask any questions, you know, how's this going? What do you want more? Am I doing okay? Um, is generally presented as wrong. And for women, we're presented with this idea that we should be swept away, that the man should make us come, that he should just know what we want. So it's no wonder we don't feel comfortable talking about it. And then on top of that, we might literally not have the words. So we've not been taught the correct words for our anatomy. Um, we've been maybe taught sort of childish code words. Um, we don't understand how arousal happens. We don't understand sex science. So we literally don't have the vocabulary or the knowledge to talk about it. Add all of those things together and none of us should feel bad about being shy to talk about sex because we're set up to not be able to talk about it. Hey, if your career is perfect and everything is going exactly as planned and you've reached the height of where you want to go, skip this ad. But if not, I wrote a book called Leader Relativity, finally a starting point for new leaders. And I think it might just be up your alley. Because honestly, when I first started down my leadership journey eight years ago, it was confusing. There was so much thrown at me. And oh, by the way, what I was reading in the real world was completely different than what I was being taught at work. So if you're in this weird spot where you know you want to take your next step, but you're not quite sure how to do it, please give my book a try. You're exactly who I wrote it for. I can honestly say leadership has never been made this simple. So if that sounds interesting, if you're ready to take that leap with me, Hop over to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you buy books and grab your copy today. Thanks. So you're kind of highlighting as we grow up, you know, being shut down in a conversation like that. So I guess when should parents be having the talk with their kids? And do, do you think it's the same age that schools should be teaching sex ed to kids? Well, I think this is a fascinating topic. Um, I'd like to reference an organisation called Sex Positive Families, sexpositivefamilies.org. Um, and whenever anyone asks me questions like this, I tend to refer to knowledge that I have drawn from them because I'm not a child psychology expert. I'm not a child sexuality development expert. What the, the amazing point that Sex Positive Families makes ties in with some of what I say in my TEDx talk. So in the talk, I make the point that in good sex, we're practicing a lot of life skills that are useful outside of the bedroom as well. So if we think of that in reverse, many of those life skills, such as bodily autonomy, such as knowing how to ask for and how to give consent, um, knowing our bodies as our own, and as a source of pleasure and, and confidence, not shame. Those are the kinds of skills that parents can be teaching very, very young children that aren't at the age of um, two, for example, directly about sex, but are life skills which will serve them as they become sexually active. So in the early years, it's those kinds of skills that certainly we can begin teaching. And then when those skills are in place, when that child does start asking questions about sex or is becoming sexually aware. They already have that foundation. And it almost feels like maybe nowadays parents are getting caught off guard because it feels like 
earlier and earlier now, children are getting exposed to sex, whether it's through social media or movies or TV. As a parent who has young kids for anyone out there, should you just kind of let the exposure happen as it's going to natural these days? Or is there any onus, do you think, to try to shield them from any of that and and preserve that sort of, you know, innocence for as long as you can? Have you noticed, I guess maybe, have you noticed a pattern in any of your clients where the age of exposure has made a big difference? Um, that's an interesting question. And I would have to say, not that immediately springs to mind. No, no, I've never thought about that before. But there's not a clear trend, or I would have noticed it in that regard. Um, but certainly the trend is around whether they were made to feel that sex was something shameful and dirty and wrong, or whether they were made to feel it was something that could be talked about and that wasn't shameful or dirty or wrong. Generally, the um, advice for parents with younger kids is if something comes up on a TV program you're watching together, for example, um, what not to do is grab the remote, switch the channel and sure. change the topic. I mean, <laughs> I'm sure a lot of us can remember that from our own childhood. Um, as a family, when I was growing up, we were fans of the James Bond films and books. But whenever there was a sex scene, my mum would say, of course, in real life, he'd be riddled with sexual diseases <laughs> as a way to <laughs> express her <laughs> distaste at that. Um, but generally, the advice now from organisations like Sex Positive Families is to discuss what you've seen. Don't make it a um, something that's kind of pushed to the side and ignored. Um, I mean, this is something which... I remember with my stepson, not specifically about sex, but rather about violence in computer games. He wanted a game that he wasn't quite legally old enough for, but all of his friends had it, etc., etc. Um, and in the end, we agreed, OK, you can have it, but we are going to sit and watch some of it with you and discuss what you're seeing. Um, so, I mean, I'm not suggesting a direct transference to sex. I'm not suggesting you allow a 14-year-old to watch an 18 film and you sit with them and talk about the sex scenes. But as you say, children are being exposed to this kind of content. Um, parents can ask general conversations around, you know, have you seen anything online that has confused you or that has upset you or that you'd like to talk about um, and try and keep communication open in all topics with their kids and let them know that that they are a safe place to bring questions to. I think a fear that parents will have is that they won't know the answers and that they'll feel embarrassed. But if that's the case, there's lots of fantastic age-appropriate material online now, educational material. So to say, do you know what? I don't know the answer to that, but let's look it up together. That's a recommended approach. So the old school method of let's plan a chat and sit down and, and hash all this out in like one or two goes, probably not the correct way. You're, you're shaking your head. No, no, I wouldn't recommend that. No, it's a conversation that needs to be open and ongoing through different ages. And I think part of the problem, and give me your opinion, Ruth, is that parents have that same sort of almost shame talking about it. So they really don't want to bring it up to their kids. Mm -hmm. And so I think any chance someone has to not talk about sex, they'll probably take. So I wanted to ask you, Ruth, do you think it's always been like this? I mean, do you think like in the Renaissance, they were so, you know, 
quick to dismiss sex or even back to like thousands of years ago? Or do you think it's more of a recent development? Um, I don't know. I'm not a historian. I would imagine when we were all living in much closer proximity, so families sharing one room in a house and in cultures where that's still happening, for example, um, I would assume that sex isn't so taboo because kids would, if not explicitly see, they would hear and know that that was something that was going on. Um, but I don't know. If I ever have a have a coffee with a historian, I'll ask them that. Or I'm sure there must be books about that. Um, to the point you made before, I think it's good for parents or for, for adults, for parents, um, to be honest with themselves about when they first became aware of sex and became interested in sex. I think we can look at our children or stepchildren or children who are in our care and we want to think of them as innocent for as long as possible. I was coaching a client who was telling me that she'd become sexually active at 14, but with no education, um, certainly no education around bodily autonomy and consent, let alone around sexual pleasure and the problems that that had caused her and the problems that start was still causing her now in her mid 40s. At the end of the call, I was recommending a series on Netflix um, called The Principles of Pleasure. And I knew that she had a daughter who was 17 and was going off to university in a couple of months time. And I said to her, actually, you could watch that with your daughter. You know, it's, it's great. It's suitable for all ages. That might be a great thing to do together. She looked horrified and said, oh, no, she doesn't need to know anything about sex yet. She's not sexually active. And I didn't even need to say anything. I just sat there and I saw the realisation come across her face. So I think um, we can all be more honest about our interests at that age and not be horrified when our children and teens are interested. So that's that's so funny you say that because all of those people were once young, right? And they mm. they know what those people what their children are thinking and feeling. So then when does the shift happen, Ruth, where now all of a sudden you're naive to the fact of what's going on and you would rather kind of silence the discussion because clearly a shift has to occur between when mm. you're in your teens and when you're in your 30s, 40s, and 50s. I mean, what what does it? Is it just being exposed to society for so long or can you explain that? Um, I would assume it's something in the journey as a parent. I'm not a biological parent, so I haven't been through that. Um but that there's something that happens brain chemistry wise, psychosocial wise, you know, just through being a parent. I, you know, you want to protect your children. And I guess part of that might be not wanting to accept that they are growing into people who want to have experiences in areas where you can't directly be there in person and protect them. Now, is there any link between a person's, I'm going to call it sexual literacy, and then their um, relationship with sex as they move forward. I mean, um, I know you said you haven't noticed anything about the age that someone's exposed, but maybe their openness to talk about it, um, you know, just facts in general about what's going on with the human body. Are there any correlations there you've noticed? Um, absolutely. And research backs this up. Um, it's been shown again and again that, uh, 
a good sex education where children and young people are taught anatomy, the science of sex, the science of arousal, taught about bodily autonomy, about consent, as I keep mentioning, for example, um, about sex as um, something which can and should give pleasure to oneself and one's partners. When there's been that kind of education, age of sexual activity with another person gets older, increases. People who've had that kind of education engage in sexual activity later and generally have better experiences and more powered experiences when they do. There's been many reports that have shown that. So yeah, the answer to your question is a big yes. Interesting. Okay. So then that takes me to to the next line of reasoning, which is, let's step ahead a bit. Waiting for marriage to have sex. Now you said the longer you wait, the, the more literate you are in it, the better off you're going to be. But waiting to actually um, formalize the relationship with being married, good, bad, doesn't matter. Mm. Um, you may have misunderstood me slightly there, slightly there. I wasn't saying the longer you wait, the better. I was saying there's a correlation between high levels of education and young people waiting longer before they have sex. So maybe they wait until they're 17 and have been with a partner a year before they both consciously and actively choose to engage in sex rather than being pressurised into it when they're younger than that um, and maybe aren't ready for it but don't know enough about it or how to say no or how to um, stand up for their own boundaries and rights. So Does the... Sorry, Ruth. Does the reverse hold, though? If you wait long enough, do you become eventually through osmosis to have a better relationship with it? No, 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 no. Okay. Absolutely not, I would say. If If you don't have that education, as I say, in the basics of sex science, in autonomy, in consent, you do not pick that up by osmosis. Quite the opposite. If you are learning about sex from mainstream TV and film, from porn, as a woman from romance culture. If those are your lessons, then that is setting you up for an unhappy sex life. That's the position that most of my clients have come from, not having any formal education and so believing the many, many harmful myths that exist in mainstream culture. Hey, real quick, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to say thank you to everybody for all the support since starting this podcast. I really do appreciate it. And if you're looking for a way to support the show, just tell a friend. Just tell a friend that, hey, I found this new podcast where Joe spends hours researching every guest because he really does respect your time and want it to be worthwhile. So if you're looking to help me out, you could make my week by just telling someone about the show. That's it. All right, let's get back to it. Now, back to the tennis analogy for a minute, because I love I love using it. If you've only had one tennis partner, I, I couldn't help but wonder, how do you know if you're playing tennis correctly? And is there anything to be said about someone who's had multiple partners that they're more versed in sex? Or like you're saying, is it purely educational? You can, you can learn this whether you've had one, two, ten, or, or a hundred partners. Mm. Um, this is something that's come up again and again in the comments under the te- under my TEDx talk. It has been so fascinating for me to read those because the TEDx talk going out internationally, as it has done, um, the comments are kind of like doing a global survey 
on sex. And something that has come up a lot is that particular issue, um, saying surely it's better to have played with lots of different partners. Um, I think we each bring to sex and what we want from sex our own unique mix of physical, emotional, psychological and cultural needs. Um, and what's right for one person is not right for another. Now, I'm not trying to avoid the question, um, but I'm saying for one person, their unique mix of needs might mean that for them, the right thing is to be to only have one tennis partner, but within that partnership to um, explore together lots of different ways of playing, different techniques, playing different roles, um, staying up to date on new knowledge, on new technologies, etc., etc. For another person, um, it might be fit within, as I say, their unique web of physical, psychological, emotional, cultural. Oh, and I should have added spiritual as well. Um, within that unique web for them, they might be feel more confident and happy having lots and lots of tennis partners. It's not for me as a coach, or I would say for any sex educator, to make a definitive statement it's best to have had lots of partners or it's best to only have one partner um, because we're not just looking purely at sexual skill or at tennis skill. So I hope you don't feel I've kind of sidestepped that question. No, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I think mm. it takes me to this question, which is sex drives. Mm. And they, they span, as I'm sure you can attest to, I guess, a, what's normal for men and women, if there is a normal? And then what if your tennis partner wants to play more tennis than you do? How do you mm. navigate those situations? Mm. This was a thing that's come up the most often in the comments. Um, what if I want to play tennis and my partner just never, ever wants to play tennis anymore? And it's the prevalence of that comment has led me to want to give more focus to this and put together more resources on my website, for example, around this. So there will be things coming up from that. Um, so sex drive, we use the term sex drive, but sex is not actually a drive. So biologically speaking, the drives are the things which are essential for the survival of an individual organism. So we need food, we need water, we need a safe place. We need the ability to control extremes of body temperature. So for humans, for example, that means clothing and shelter. Um, we need all of those things to survive as an individual. Those are the drives. And if any of those drives are not being satisfied, then our other desires in life, including for sex, will be minimised because the important thing for survival is that those drives are met. Now, if we think of, for example, the typical midlife woman, she might be super stressed juggling a job and a household. That stress comes across as a lack of safety to the brain. Um, she might feel she has no privacy or safe space because her teenage kids will just barge into the bedroom whenever they like. Um, maybe she's unhappy with midlife weight gain and she's dieting and so she's hungry all the time. Maybe perimenopausal or menopausal symptoms mean she has insomnia, so she's exhausted all the time. She, she, all of her drives are not being met. So 
of course, she's not experiencing the desire for sex. She's not experiencing libido. And I think understanding that sex is not a drive, um, even though some teenage boys might joke that they're going to die if they don't get it. (laughs) Understanding it's not a drive is really important. Um, And often I work with clients who appear to have mismatched libidos. But actually, um, what's happening is for one of them, their drives aren't actually being met. Um, We also have different levels of sensitivity to sexual stimuli. We take different amounts of time to become aroused. And you might have a couple where what needs to happen is one of them needs many more cues before sex begins. And so, um, and when I say sex, I mean intimate, physical or mental activity of an erotic nature together. I don't mean penetrative intercourse. So for one partner, um, seeing that love heart in the diary a few days or a week before is the start of the process. Um, The other partner helping make sure that they take as much stress as possible off the partner. Um, tailoring the run-up to sex, if necessary, days before to make sure that that person's drives are met and that they've had a long warm-up time. Then they're more likely to be in a place for intimate sexual play. Their partner might be someone who's got a spontaneous desire type, can go zero to 60 in two seconds, um, just needs to see a bit of bare skin and some genitals in order to feel aroused. And so we can see that without understanding of sensitivity to sexual stimuli, etc., the spontaneous partner is going to initiate it. The other partner is going to go, no way, I'm not in the mood for that. And they can then end up with a lot of conflict in that relationship. When there is conflict like that, that's the worst possible thing um, when we want to resolve that problem. There can be so, so much stress, emotional pain, fear and hurt when we're in that situation of thinking, well, we've got to use the terminology people generally use, we've got totally different sex drives, we're doomed. So what's needed is understanding and education about oneself and then the willingness from both partners to put the work in that's necessary for them both to arrive at that same place of being ready to feel desire and to enjoy sex together at the same time. So in your mind, through enough open communication, there can there should never be a point where two people are truly sexually incompatible. There might be that point. So um, we have people who are asexual, who genuinely do not have interest in sex and do not feel desire. Um, if someone who's asexual becomes romantically drawn to and involved with someone who feels libido very, very easily, Um, And also maybe they're in the 20% of people for whom stress turns them on. For 80% of us, um, research suggests stress turns us off. We need to be unstressed to feel optimal desire. And that's not to say that um, we can't have sex with a trusted partner and enjoy it when we're stressed. I'm sure a lot of us have done that. But we're talking about optimal, magnificent sex. Um, So... Yeah, around 80% of people, stress will turn them off. Around 20%, stress will turn them on because they use sex as a way to de-stress. So if you've got someone who's very quickly, easily switched on and who uses sex as a way to de-stress, 
and they've become romantically drawn to and involved with someone who is asexual, then yeah, you do have a mismatch of libido there. Now, another, I think, common maybe thing that's popped up in your comments is having sex when you have children. Mm. So there's, there's maybe you're a new parent. How about this? What's your advice to new parents on how to maintain a healthy relationship with your partner? Well, I addressed this in my TEDx talk. Um, there were a couple of parts of the talk that I was like, this has to be included. Um, even though it was so hard to get the talk down to six minutes, there were certain elements where I was just thinking, I'm not going to go out onto that stage if I'm told to cut that out. And in fact, I wasn't told to cut those bits out. But one of them was where I say um, reframing sex as a hobby gives us hope when life is genuinely too busy, maybe when we're raising a young family, for example, that we can and will return to it. So when, when a parent or parents have young children, that is the time in the life cycle when statistically there's going to be the least sex. I think to accept that, not get stressed and resentful and not assume this is the end of our sex life. I think that's what's needed. Now, what is though the biggest misconception out there about sex that you that you hear constantly from people who come to you for coaching and and is it a different thing between what you hear from men versus women? I think the the biggest damaging myth um, is that good sex has to be spontaneous sex or that any sex has to be spontaneous sex. Learning that that's actually not how typically desire works, especially in a long-term relationship and especially as we get older, I think is the most transformational thing that I I see land on people um, because we're taught it should be spontaneous, that we should be thinking of sex a dozen times or maybe more a day. Um, that even in a long-term relationship, you know, we can be cleaning the kitchen together and just give each other a cheeky little look and the next thing we're kissing and the next thing we're having passionate sex on, on the kitchen table. We think there's something wrong with us if we don't feel it spontaneously. So what I see so often in long-term couples is they've developed a pretty much sexless, sexless marriage. Um, maybe they have sex once every four to six months or once a year, but they're waiting until they both spontaneously feel like it. Now, spontaneous desire typically is more often felt by men um, than women. But as men get older and as they spend longer in a relationship, their desire style shifts towards responsive desire. Responsive desire is the desire type more often felt typically in women. So this concept was kind of worked on and presented by a sexologist called Rosemary Basson in the 1990s. She had been asked to run a clinic for women who had been diagnosed with chronically low libido. But what she found interviewing these women is again and again, they would say, when my husband initiates and I think, oh, I'm just going to go along with it. I don't feel like it, but I'm just going to go along with it. I find that I end up really enjoying it. And afterwards I say, that was great. We should do this more often. But then after it's over, you know, and in the days and weeks afterwards, it just never occurs to me again. And she heard this so much and I hear it a lot. 
um, that she thought there's something different going on here. These women aren't spontaneously feeling like sex, but it's not that they can't experience desire. And she come up, came up with the concept of responsive desire. This is where we need to be in a sexually appealing environment. Um, we need to have a lot of cues coming in, um, visual, sensory, that sex you know, is maybe is going to be a good idea. We need to be in that environment before before that kind of flame of arousal lights, before we think, oh, yeah, yeah, this is a great idea. Um, so that's responsive desire. It's considered clinically normal for a woman in a long-term relationship to never feel spontaneous desire, to only experience responsive desire. As I say, for men, um, typically between the ages of 35 or 40 and 50, the desire style starts to shift. And if a man doesn't understand what's going on, he'll think, I used to think about sex once an hour, and now I only think about it once or twice a day. My time as a sexual man is over. Whereas it isn't. It's just that that desire style is shifting. So when I explain this, very often um, I'll have women cry when I explain this. They'll think there's something wrong with me. I'm broken. Or they'll think there's something wrong with my relationship. My relationship is doomed. Clearly, I don't fancy him anymore. Um, and they'll think there's no coming back from that. But when they understand this science of responsive desire, and that it means putting a little bit of effort in before we necessarily feel like it. And I'm going to give an example, but then I'm going to make some crucial points around that. So, for example, um, putting on exercise clothes and going out for a run or going for an exercise class. Now, I know there are people who run who desperately look forward to it and are keen to get out there. But I would say for most runners, me included, we'd quite like to sit on the sofa at the end of our working day. But we know if we make the effort that once we're out there, once we've done the first five or 10 minutes, we'll think, oh, this is all right, actually. By the end, we'll be going, this is fantastic. We'll feel great afterwards. We'll be so glad that we did it. If we waited to spontaneously feel like a run, we didn't put it in our diary. We waited to spontaneously feel like it. How many times in the month will we go for a run? So, <laughs> sorry, I'm giving Great another point. sports and yeah. fitness analogy, aren't I? Um, but the crucial point is I am not saying engage in intimate sexual activity when you don't feel like it. So there needs to be in a partnership communication around this and understanding that love heart in the diary does not mean we have to engage in physical sexual activity. No, um, it means we're going to create the environment which we know enables us to relax and for for our desire for libido to much more easily arise. Um, so what my husband and I will do, we'll check in normally kind of mid-afternoon and say, Are you still up for tonight? And it's totally fine if either of us says, do you know what? No, I'm not. I'm exhausted, for example. But what we'll aim to do is still have intimate personal time together. Some of the benefits of great sex are also the benefits of having that intimate personal time. Um, so an example, literally from last night, actually, we had a love heart in the diary, but then we both had kind of a stressful day. Um, we're normally extremely in tune, kind of psychic link in tune, but we weren't. And I felt that we weren't. And when I feel we're not, that makes me not feel like sex. I knew he was tired and we checked in and we're like, no. 
But what we did instead, um, he finds foot massages deeply relaxing and I love having my hands massaged. So in the evening, instead of zoning out in front of Netflix, um, I gave him a foot massage. We put nice music on. I gave him a foot massage. He gave me a hand massage. We both relaxed. We felt connected. We felt that we had kind of overcome together that that awkward situation of we're not quite in tune. Um, and we we fell asleep feeling loving and connected, which sets us up best better for the next time there is a love heart in the diary. Um, so it's yeah, it's very important. You need to communicate. There's no obligation. And in fact, just the awareness that we can say no and it's okay is part of what can make us relax. Be sure that our partner's being authentic when they say yes. And then that relaxation is part of what can allow libido to arise more easily in the future. Now, would a good first step for, I'm going to call them newbies to the, the methods you're teaching, Ruth, be to, instead of, say you're not ready to have that meeting that you and your husband have and put down the heart, what if you just made a, a routine of it? Would that be a step in the right direction or the wrong direction, given this responsive desire you're talking about? Scheduling on every Saturday night, for example. Yeah, for example, yeah. Interesting. I've worked with couples who do that, but unsuccessfully, who have the feeling that every Saturday night um, we we have to have sex um, and who almost have it kind of on autopilot. Um, I think what we're looking for when we're scheduling sex is to keep a degree of novelty and of change and of difference, because those are all things which help us keep interested in sex. If we know it's always coming up at the same time, on a Saturday night. Um, I think depending on the energy and creativity that that couple bring to it, that could work, but there would be the risk there of it becoming very routine. But is it better to have it on a Saturday night, presuming that you both enjoy it or that everyone involved enjoys it? Is it better to have it every Saturday night or not have it for six months? Then I'd say have it every Saturday night. And in your TED Talk, you said something profound. And you wouldn't play your best tennis after brushing your teeth right before bed, which I couldn't help but kind of smirk at. Is is that when most people typically are engaging in sex? And, and is it your opinion that maybe that should be shifted earlier in the day? And do you have a, a preferred time of day that you think is best for people to engage in that? Hmm. It is when most people are having sex. And I think it isn't the optimum time. Now, for people with kids, it might be the only time that's available and we work with what we have. Um, for people who are night owls, it might work fine. Uh, but I think generally, I was about to say, when we're playing sex, <laughs> mix the <laughs> metaphors, um, just like when we're, when we're playing tennis, we want to feel um, that we have enough energy to bring to that game, enough attentiveness, enough um, connection with our partner. Um, and for sex as well, we need ideally for optimum sex to have that energy and attentiveness. I think for a lot of people just before bed isn't the optimum time. What is the optimum time is going to depend on the individual. Um, I don't know if there's a kind of sexual circadian rhythm. I don't know if any research has been done on that, but I, for example, have this surge of kind of spontaneous desire generally around mid-afternoon 
Um, <laughs> we're recording this mid-afternoon UK time, but no, don't worry. Um, that seems to be my kind of erotic circadian rhythm. So I know for me, if time allows on a weekend, then it's great to have that little love heart mid-afternoon on a Saturday, for example. But we are juggling what's optimum for us, what's optimum for a partner, if a partner's involved, our lifestyle, our working um, situation, our childcare, etc. I think the main takeaway is just not to always assume it has to be between brushing your teeth and falling asleep, to ask yourself what other times might suit me. Maybe if you're on holiday and have the opportunity to have an open diary, and see what happens. Um, use that as a learning opportunity to see when do I and we actually feel like it? What's what's it like to have sex mid-afternoon? Um, early morning is another popular time, though. I think for people with young kids as well, that can be the time that maybe there's a little bit of peace. So it's coming to the optimum compromise between when you feel desire and when your lifestyle allows you to have sex. Hey everybody, this week's episode is brought to you by my new book, Leader Relativity. Becoming a leader has literally never been this simple. I spent two and a half years boiling it down, waking up at 4.30 every morning, thinking how much easier can I make this subject for someone who's a little nervous in the beginning and just wants something to get started, to get their foot in the door. So that's what I did. The book's called Leader Relativity and you can get it anywhere you buy books. Thanks. Um, and again, this is something that I mentioned in my TEDx talk. And for me, um, this is the section of the talk that for me was the most important. Um, and it's where I'm saying reframing sex as a hobby in the bigger picture highlights the need for accurate education and accessible medical care. It encourages respect for diversity. It recognises that people in differently abled and ageing communities have a right to pleasure too. That was the most important part of my talk. And so, Ruth, I've got two more. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you what probably everyone's thinking. And you, freeform answer, answer however you want. How much sex is normal to have in a month? Answer that however you'd like. But I feel like anyone would be wondering that right now. How much sex is normal, you said, not how much sex is right. Um, Ooh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Statistically around every 10 days is normal. So twice, um, no, what's that? Three times a month is considered statistically normal. But that might be three not very mutually happy times a month. There might be another couple with busy lifestyles, young kids who have a hotel date one afternoon every two months and have an amazing time. So, um, that three times a month might be what's considered normal, and I'm air quoting. But what's right is what feels joyful, pleasurable, and good for you and for your partner or partners. And now, Ruth, anyone who's listening to this, they might be wondering, what's the first and simplest step I can do to have a better sex life? If I'm not ready to go see a coach such as yourself quite yet, what's a what's an easy, simple thing people can do out there to to help their sex life right now listen to podcasts about sex if you put sex into a reputable podcast provider you should only get educational content not any 
porn or erotic fiction content. You should get educational content. The reason I love podcasts so much, A, it's bang up to date information. Our awareness of the science of sex is changing pretty fast at the moment. Um, And if you're reading a book that's maybe 15, 20 years out of date, you're not getting the up-to-date information. But listening to an expert on a podcast that was maybe recorded three weeks ago, you're getting that up-to-date information. You're learning, obviously. But the most important aspect with podcasts is it's normalizing conversation around sex. It's teaching you the right vocabulary. It's allowing you to hear words out loud that maybe you were brought up to believe shouldn't ever be spoken out loud. And then you can also use that if you have a partner as a way into talking about sex. I listened to this amazing podcast the other day or this fascinating podcast. I'd love you to listen to it and see what you think. So just like um, I've been told by so many people from around the world that my TEDx talk has enabled them to talk about sex with their partner because it's kind of the third person in the conversation. Let's talk about this TEDx talk. And then, yes, how it applies to us, but that's much less pressured than lets you and I have a conversation about our sex life. Podcasts can operate in the same kind of way. There are so many out there um, presented by a vast diversity of presenters on a vast diversity of topics. So listen to a few. Hopefully you'll find one that resonates with you and listen to it every week. Amazing. Thank you, Ruth, so much. If folks want to get a hold of more of what you're doing, how can they do that? My website is the best place and it's ruthramsay.com. Ramsay is A-Y at the end, not E-Y. So ruthramsay.com. And then I love Instagram. Um, Instagram is something which actually has a negative impact on my sex life because <laughs> I spend far too long on it. Oh, just just one more look, just one more look. So I do have to ration myself sometimes, but um, I'm on Instagram a lot at ruthramsay underscore. Amazing. Thank you so much, Ruth, for coming on and, and teaching us all about a subject we're all too familiar with, but most people don't want to talk about. So I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been my absolute pleasure. <laughs>